Man, those are such great words that you wrote about me. <laughs> um, if, if you've spoken here before, you know that Ron will send you a message saying, hey, tell me about yourself. Can you write a bio that I'm going to read out to everybody? And I think for a, a lot of people, self-awareness is hard. So I had to kind of sit there and think about it. Okay, college wasn't a breeze for me. It was a real challenge. But I think that's cool because I've noticed that, and maybe you've noticed this too, Pastor, that like, for some reason, once you step into a role, it becomes an excuse to others to not do the same. Like whenever you step into the role of ministry or the role of pastor or the role of shepherd or the role of blank, and you're trying to lead others likewise, they kind of go, well, you're in that role for a reason, but not me. I kind of miss the days when I used to just work an eight to five job in the insurance industry, kind of just typing in social security numbers all day because it made the platform a little bit easier talking to people. So we're, you know, we're gonna have a conversation this morning. I have a few slides I wanna run through and then kind of leave an open opportunity for Q&A. However, I'd be remiss if we didn't really just have an honest, open conversation about what it's like to live missionally right here. Um, the presentation matters, but in my opinion, y'all matter more, and whatever value I can bring your community matters most. Um, so with that being said, we'll, uh, we'll open with a little bit of prayer and uh, get into it. Sound good? Cool. God, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity that uh, we have as a community of men who believe in you, Jesus, uh, to fellowship with one another, to encourage and exhort and um, properly critique one another, to coach one another as we shepherd and create and bring goodness into the community around us and prioritize the sharing of the gospel and the calling of, of people into the faith. Lord, we, we ask that you would move with your Holy Spirit in love and in truth and in compassion this morning. Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen. So I'm James. I'm from Houston. My wife, Brittany, is from here. And what's really cool about uh, being from Houston is that there's parts of it that you know and parts of it that you don't. And what's even crazier is that in my own neighborhood, there were parts that I knew in parts that I didn't know. Brittany had moved from uh, Starkville at the time. She went down to MSU. Um, she won't hold it against you. She wants me to kind of promote them, but uh, I'm kind of, I don't really have a, a horse in the race here. Um, but she had moved from Starkville down to my neighborhood to minister to unreached people groups, which we'll define a little bit later, um, who happened to be the aunts and uncles and immigrant parents of some of my closest friends growing up. And so it was really interesting to be walking on my old stomping grounds after coming back from college, um, going to places right next to my high school, and then being known not as James, but as, oh, you're Brittany's boyfriend, you're Brittany's fiance, oh, you're Brittany's husband. And it was really great because Brittany had developed herself to being a Bible teacher in the community, the Muslim community knew it. She's the Bible teacher. And yet they didn't reject her. They accepted her and took care of her. They were constantly people of peace who gifted things to her and provided meals for her regularly without any expectation because they knew that she was teaching their children righteousness. 
That's impressive. So man, to not be known as James in my own neighborhood, but to be known as Brittany's boyfriend, fiance, husband, I was super proud and was like, man, this is a woman worth pursuing. We live in Memphis now. We, we've moved up here. We've packed up our apartment, and we're, we're staying at, uh, near Adam and Ashley Rhodes. Um, but we used to live in southwest Houston, um, where I'm originally from, in particular, um, a place called Sugarland. I promise it's a real place. Um, the band is named after the town. And we had a really interesting uh, ministry in um, southwest Houston, in Sugarland. What we would do is we were sharing the gospel with unreached people groups, which I've said a second time now, so I promise the third time I mention it, we'll define it. Um, we were working with unreached people groups, and we were doing it in a very strategic way. We were first leading by stepping forward into unreached people group communities, which is any definable culture or people in which 2% or less of their total population is Christian. And that's important. We would step first into these communities, build relationships, build friendships, and then after we had done it, after we had done it, try to teach and train others to do likewise. And there's a way we would do this. We would first start by taking people into temples. I got to go with Ben, um, what was it, last Thursday, to kind of just scope out temples here in the Memphis area. Um, and what you'll see is we go to temples and we learn about their religions. We learn about how they practice their religion. We try to talk to a representative, whether it's a Hindu priest or a Sikh priest um, or an imam at a mosque, whatever. We try to have a real dialogue here. And then we importantly discuss how to share the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. After that, we would tend to do spend our afternoons while people were at work and children were at school. We'd spend our afternoons training people on how to share the gospel, how to disciple, etc. And then towards the evening time, we'd take these same teens to have conversations with people of other communities. And my favorite part was sometimes these kids got saved along the way. There's a training that we do about how to share your testimony in 15 seconds, which is really intense. And my friend Ty here was trying to share his testimony. He was trying to learn, how do I share the story of how Jesus changed my life? He knew that there was a time in his life where he was dazed and confused like a bad movie, but he never had a moment where he could say, but Jesus changed me. He never had that moment, and he realized that on this trip when his faith was being challenged by having exposure to other religions and realizing, man, I'm scared because I'm being so challenged in my faith, but God pursued him through that. And so this is what we've been doing in Southwest Houston. We see a vision of this in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sends missionaries out two by two. He sends his disciples out two by two and even others outside the original 12. He sends up to 72 at times, um, two by two to different cities in which he's going to. I think the Holy Spirit is heavily at work in the Philippines, and so we plan to kind of pick up, contextualize, and put and drop down in the culture where we are. So this is uh, the Philippines and the island that we're pointing to here. This is Cebu uh, City. Um, we're going to be living kind of over here-ish. And what's important to notice about Cebu is that it's very diverse culturally. There are plenty of Muslim communities Buddhist communities, Hindu communities, and Sikh communities, and we plan on living right in their midst. 
and doing the same. Reaching unreached people groups first, leading by doing first, and then leading by sharing second, by inviting Filipino believers to come and see what it's like to put down tribalist mentality and to really pursue their neighbors for the gospel. The reason we want to do this is because Filipinos, by and large, are moving to what is called the 1040 window. This is an area of the world in which there are the most unreached people groups and the least amount of gospel engagement. And they're moving to these countries, and our hope is as they get there to see them catalyze and plant and charter house church movements. Now, I talked about this a few times, unreached people groups, and I've talked about this platform that the Filipino Christian believer has already of an offshore worker. What we're seeing is that over 2 million Filipinos are going to Qatar, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, these Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist countries for work. Um, the Philippines is really struggling um, financially, and there's a lot that we can be doing there. And at the same time, we can recognize, okay, something is happening. They have found a way. They are traveling to other countries, and they're sending money back. Of those two million uh, Filipinos, I wonder how many of them are born again, or how many, when sharing the gospel, will receive, that we can equip, empower, train up, and send out with a platform already for missions. See, when my wife and I go, we've been to Bangladesh and she's been to a lot more of these countries. If you're not an engineer, then what are you, is the perspective, is the attitude of, if you're not an engineer, if you're not into philanthropy, if you're not planning a well, what are you doing? Platform is everything. And yet these opportunities are so present for Filipino believers that they already have a platform for business. They're already working. This is not new. The Moravians did this way back in the day, and they were wildly successful. Business as missions and marketplace ministries are still huge today, and we're empowering a new wave of Filipinos to do the same. That's our hope. And so to keep things really simple, we want to first acclimate to the culture. We want to be educated and educate others. And we want to see the gospel movement replicated. Um. This is a new graphic that I just added, so I don't have a cool transition for it. We, we are kind of raising support. This is what we're doing, and this is the part that makes me most uncomfortable, but my wife is, is super great at it. She's awesome at being direct. We're raising support. We are at 95%, which means that a few partnerships could truly be the difference between us staying here and talking about it and us going and actually doing it. Could be you. Could not be you. You know, the Bible says give based off conviction, not obligation or apathy, but give joyfully to the Lord. And so this is a little graphic I made because I love billiards um, kind of explaining. We can get into that later. Um, we are raising monthly support. We're raising a one-time launch fee. Um, mangoes are the fruit of the Philippines. And so I kind of created this graphic recently explaining how close we are to actually moving out there. But you know, we, we want you to partner with us, but it's not really fair to ask if I haven't given you an opportunity for questions, for answers. And again, I care way more about you living a missional life than I care about a few extra dollars a month. So at this time, I want to just kind of pause here and open up for questions. Um, do we have another mic? Cool. And uh, I can pass this to the first, uh, first person. 
how long is your initial commitment and is there a, a group you're partnered with or what does that look like? So the group we're partnered with, I'll answer them um, reversely, is called World Venture. Um, I think I have a slide actually here on World Venture. Um, there we go. That works. Um, World Venture was started kind of in the late 40s, early 50s. They're a conservative Baptist um, foreign mission society. In fact, that was their name for a while, but it's really hard to get into places like Pakistan when your name is Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society. <laughs> so they rebranded into World Venture. Um, crew changed from Cramp Campus Crusade to Crew. Everybody's rebranding these days, and I think it's totally fine. Um, and so... To answer your question, we're going with World Venture. They're a nonprofit 501c3 based out of Denver, Colorado, with missionaries kind of all over the world. They're a kind of your they're a sending agency that I think prioritizes the liberty of the missionary. What that means is like if it's a decision of, hey, we have kids now, where should our kids go to school? The mission agency goes, Oh, well, you're the missionaries. You live there, you know the academic climate of the country you're in, you decide. Other mission agencies at times will be like, well, you have to send your kids here because it's policy. So this is why I picked them. They also have like a, a kind of perspective of there are so many different ways to reach the gospel and to reach a, a city for Christ. We have a platform that's pretty evangelism discipleship focused, but actually other teammates of mine will be doing more traditional church planning. Another teammate of mine is working with um, impoverished youth and homeless youth and at-risk youth. Um, I've done things with World Venture, working with people who are recovering from addiction, things like that. So there is a team that I'm working with. We're functionally more like a, a working group. We're all trying to reach the city for Christ, and we have different ways to do that, and we overlap and we collaborate quite a bit. Um, your first question was about initial commitment. So with World Venture, you can choose to go for a short-term trip, which is historically about a year, maybe two tops. You can go for a set assignment for about two to four years. But I've known since I was 16 that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So we're open assignment, which means we're going and we're not really coming back. We plan on coming back for furloughs every three to four years, depending on what is best. But we're in this for the long haul. Uh, I really just can't see myself doing something else unless God says otherwise, in which case I'm super obedient to it. Any other questions? Do you have that mic? Awesome. Hello? Hello? Yeah, when you did it for the podcast, Ben's going to be really grateful about this later when he's editing. In the culture there where you're going to be living and staying, is there any specific target areas in the culture you're, that you're going to be targeting when you're there? Now, by target areas, are you referring geographically or socioeconomically? Socioeconomically. Yeah. So let me go back. Uh, to, a, to a slide that I kind of went through quickly earlier. So we're going to be targeting um, unreached people groups, and we're going to be targeting non-Christians. And the reason I say that, say that is because, ironically, conveniently, inconveniently for them, these people groups are also marginalized, and they're also super impoverished. And so socioeconomically, we're going to be working with kind of the lower classes of society, except for the Buddhist. The Buddhists are actually in kind of that premium echelon of society, and this has to deal with Philippines' history, 
when Chinese settlers first came to the Philippines, they were all kind of pushed to the side, which means that their economics were dependent on them. But historically, the Chinese have been better at business than the Filipinos until recently. Obviously, recent history shows um, a little bit of a different narrative. But they kind of push themselves up to the top. And so the Buddhists tend to actually be doing very well socioeconomically. But they still need the gospel. There's a businessman who I love working with. He's an elder at the local church. He lives in this huge mansion. It's like three or four stories. He has a bunch of cars. He has a car just for Sundays. And yet every Thursday, he doesn't do any business. He goes and he buys as many Bibles as he can, and he just hands them out. Like that's his eight-hour eight day is I'm just handing out Bibles on a Thursday when people are trying to get in those last week quota numbers, right? Especially in the type of business that he works in. And so socioeconomically, we'll be pretty diverse. Hindu students that we're working with are gonna be from India coming to practice nursing. So it'll be interesting to see how they are doing financially. What we're seeing as far as the Muslim communities go, to kind of take this answer and expand it out a little, what we're seeing as far as the Muslim communities go, is that they're actually living in pretty rough areas. Um, a lot of the Muslim communities that we see are living on land that does not belong to them. So either you can call them a squatter or an informal dweller if you want to be politically correct. But the point is that there's no infrastructure whatsoever. And so what this causes is a lot of disease and sickness because when you travel and you see these places, you'll see that there's a lot of trash as we see in that middle photo there's a lot of trash that just kind of gets strategically placed in one area. Where that photo is that says Mandawi, right, that's, I'm standing outside of a mosque and I'm taking a photo. They had told my wife that the mosque used to be there, but it burnt down three times because trash caught fire, fire caused the building to burn down. So they're living in a really impoverished area, but that's because they can't afford another area but this area isn't government owned or run, and so there's no infrastructure, so we're not putting our trash out on Tuesday night for it to get picked up Wednesday morning. That's, a, that's our reminder for next week, Adam. And so that's not, the, uh, that's not the deal there, right? And so this is why a holistic approach to missions is super important of, okay, I can teach the gospel, and that's gonna be amazing. And at the same time, I lucked out. My wife's got a master's, and she has a teaching background. There could be kids that really need help with mathematics that's going to send them the next direction, right? It's important to teach the gospel, but what we're actually see, see, seeing, and I'm kind of going on here, was when you preach the gospel and you partner it with, like, financial success, as opposed to just preaching about financial success without the gospel, you see way better growth for the community. And so people are starting to want to hear the gospel based on that principle alone. Again, what you win people with is what you tend to win them to. But I think when people receive the gospel, their life changes. And so I like using those kinds of platforms to get in and share the gospel. Thank you for your question. Other questions, sir? And then uh, Ben, did you have one? Yeah. With that many people groups, uh, what's, uh, is there a common language? How, 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 how difficult is it going to be for you to learn to speak to so many different groups and, and convey the truth to them? Man, I'm excited about that. Hey, I'm going to teach you all something really quickly in one of the national languages of the Philippines. Here it is. I'm going to teach you how to say good morning. You ready? Good morning. 
The Philippines is interesting. It has two national languages. One is called Tagalog. The other is called English. We mostly speak English pretty well, but I got to be honest, we're actually all experts in this language. And English is spoken very widely. So that's helpful. And at the same time, I can go from Metro City, Cebu, and speak English without a problem and take a 10-minute walk over into Mandawi, and no one is speaking it. And so the language we'll be learning is called Cebuano. Cebuano is a common language that people are speaking in the Southern Visayas. It's spoken about by 31% of the total population. Although most of these kids are learning Tagalog in schools, they're not good at it. Um, actually, what we're seeing is that Cebuano is kind of fading out. And as this newer generation comes in, because they have access to the internet, TikTok, they had Vine, they got YouTube, they got Facebook, they're, they're just kind of speaking English. Um, I was told once, and I don't really hold it over my head or anything, but like that I was speaking better Bisaya than like a seven or eight-year-old, which these kids are usually experts in a language, right? They'll correct you, and they have the, the courage to go and tell you when you're speaking wrong. But yet, this language is kind of fading out. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see the relationship. Now, here's what I do know historically, is that the missionaries that are still talked about today by locals are the ones who are fluent in the language and can connect with people's hearts and joke around and have a good relationship. And so for those reasons, even though Cebuano is fading out a little, Brittany and I have devoted our first year, the entirety of 2023, Lord willing, to just language learning, like it's a 40-hour job. Like this will be our 40, 60 hours a week is just trying to learn this language. Pray for us. <laughs> ben, you had a question. So I was wondering what the, the local Christian population is like. And along with that, are y'all partnering with any local churches if they, I mean, if they are there? Praise God for missionaries. There, there is a local Christian church, and I'm so happy about it. Some people say, James, don't really get too excited because it's not a good marketing point. No, I'm happy that the gospel is at work in churches and that there are born-again believers. A little bit of the history of, of, of the Christian church in the Philippines. And if there's a Filipino uh, podcast listener, go ahead and like, comment, subscribe, and message Ben and correct my answer. Um, when Magellan first came to the Philippines, he showed up and he was met by a king named Lapu-Lapu. And as a gift, he gave him a, a statue of child Jesus. And, Lop, and he goes, hey, this is God, referring to the Jesus that the statue is representing. And I think what I see is like Lapu-Lapu is going, oh, this is God, the statue. And so what we see kind of historically throughout the Philippines early church when it comes to the early Catholic church and what is now commonly called the church of the saint child is that there's a kind of a blend between Christian values and Christian beliefs and animism. The Philippines was heavily animistic back when it was just pagan and pagan religion, which to be honest, animism is kind of closer to our faith than atheism is. Atheism is there is no God. Animism is God is in everything and with everything. So, I can kind of see some of the language difficulties there. Well, this is spiraling, right? And then we have Catholicism. And then as missions and missionaries come to the Philippines, we're seeing born-again Protestant Christianity. 
I think the Philippines church is in a state of transition in their time of history. There's plenty of born-again churches on the main islands, Cebu, Manila. There's plenty of churches there. But when you go to those outermost islands, we're still seeing struggle for the gospel. And this is why missions is still important there. And at the same time, what about these main islands of Manila and Cebu where there's a church that's thriving and growing and they're replicating and they're planting more churches? Why still go there? Well, I think the reason we should still go there is because they are replicating, but they're replicating down and not spread out. What I mean by that is when you share the gospel, it's really easy to share it with your friends. But when you live in a culture that says, oh, this person has a different job, they have fairer skin than me, they're not my people, I shouldn't talk to them, that creates creates tribal divides. And so people aren't really going into the Muslim communities to share the gospel or into these other communities to share the gospel because of these divides. And so the church is in a state of transition of becoming reached to, okay, now that you've been reached, how do we send you out? Does that answer your question? Awesome. Sir. So what then is the Christian population of the Philippines, percentage-wise? I can't answer that. And the reason I can't answer that is because the resources that I recommend are like Joshua Project and and all these things. They'll tell you that it's like 90% or 98% reached. Um, Those are super high numbers. But I don't know who they're all counting, if they're counting born-agains exclusively of a Protestant faith, if they're counting Catholics, if they're counting anybody who claims Christian. You know, I don't really know the answer, but I do know that Christianity is widely accepted and people really appreciate the church out there. Oh, man, he's testing me. Uh, the question was, how, how is Brittany, how is my wife connected through uh, GetWell? Man, you're, uh, you're really pushing me here. <laughs> no, um, my wife did grow up here at this church. Um, she was really involved with Michelle Jenkins' uh, kids, um, Bailey and Morgan. They would do youth here. Um, they would have nice, wonderful events here. They would really be a part of here. And I think that kind of... In her life, she has like a lot of moments where the gospel kind of grabs her heart. And I think one of those earliest moments is after a youth group just kind of going and sitting outside and thinking, man, people need Jesus. It's not just about me here. And so she grew up at this church. Um, her father, um, Andy, and her mother, Susan, I think have, have come here a few times before. I think Andy was getting involved before uh, his job was making it a challenge for him. But uh, man, this dude is thriving in his faith. For someone who uh, works the kind of hours that, he's, that he does, he's so, he has to take so much ownership of his faith. So that's kind of how she's plugged in. And then, you know, she, she moved away to Starkville for college, but kind of stayed with this community. I think she was even like hanging out with you and Ashley right over there. So I hope that answers your question sufficiently enough. Sir, what, what's my time wrong? How many minutes? Would you share with us just how excited a Muslim leader is to have you come into his mosque unannounced and try to gather information on how to convert his constituents?
Oh, well, I mean, I can speak to it a little bit. Uh, but last Thursday, James and I did go. Um, we went to a Sikh gurdwara, a Buddhist wat, and uh, a mosque. And we, we, did, we got the chance that we didn't have a very long exchange with this man, Imam Baba. Um, but he was, I mean, he was fairly open to the idea of actually speaking to Christians about his faith. Um, however, he did not let us go into their, their place of worship. Um, but that seemed like that was not necessarily a thing that's consistent among all mosques, but just, just his. But I don't know, you can speak to that more. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing. I know I'm putting you on the spot there. Um, to answer the question the way I know to answer it for me is I've seen most often that imams are super excited to have us come. Now, we're not standing there in front of the imam going, okay, so this is an imam. He's a sinner. He's going to hell. Here are five ways you can trick him into the gospel. You listening? Number one, right? Like we're not doing that. Here's what we're doing. We're having an open dialogue to teach people empathy, humility, and kindness. And what I've seen in all the mosques that we've been to is that the imam, after the third or fourth question goes, hey, can someone ask me about 9-11 because we're not terrorists? There's a narrative that is trying to be dispelled. I remember I was not at a mosque. I was over in... Um, Think like Bartlett. I was at this like restaurant called Belly Acres. It has like a nice little open area. Kids can play bag toss. Saw two Muslim women. I went up, greeted them, and they were like really kind of nervous. And I was like, why are you scared? And she goes, well, I'm scared to even just wear my hijab because people tell me all the time to be careful because people don't like me because I'm Muslim and they associate me with terrorism. Well, that person's just eating a burger. I don't think she's a terrorist. Right? She's not doing anything crazy. She's just eating her food. In the same way, the reason that I prioritize empathy and compassion when I do temple tours and trainings is because these are just people. Like for me, it wasn't, oh, this is Muslim Moise. This is my friend Moise, and he's Muslim. In the same way for imams, I've never been turned away. These people are super hospitable for a few reasons. Some is, well, at, we saw the Sikh Gurdwara, right? Which Sikhs are their own religion. They're not Muslims. They're, they're works-based, right? And so for them to make you a cup of coffee, to bring you some water, it's kind of a good thing. Like they're doing what their faith teaches. Um, give charity, give to the community, and this is what's helping you in your, your path to salvation. Do good works. And at the same time, there's a narrative, right? A lot of these religions believe that if you're seeking God in the first place, you're kind of already on the right path, and he's going to guide you to their perspective, their path. And so to solidify my answer for your question, I've never been rejected by an imam. I've always been welcomed with open arms here or in the Philippines. Even in Bangladesh, have I been welcomed by Muslims because there's a way that we do it. We're not aggressive, we're not mean-spirited, we're not trying to outwit them. We're with empathy and compassion, asking really important questions and giving them an opportunity to represent themselves. I have time for one more question. Man, I've just given a flawless presentation, there's no questions left. Oh, there it is. Last week, when you came to our Sunday school class, you, uh, you really discussed how 
he wanted to train up uh, people in the Philippines to go to Saudi Arabia and uh, the socioeconomics are behind that. Can you share that with the group? Because I know they'd be interested in that. Yeah, I'll, I'll get a little bit more detailed um, with this. Let me find that slide for you real quick. So, yes, Filipinos are already going to Saudi Arabia. They're already going to other countries, and we want to train them up to make the most of this opportunity. Here's the specific kind of jobs that they're taking. Factory work, nannying, nail techs. They're working labor-based jobs or in labor camps or just kind of those regular everyday jobs. And what's really cool about this is that these are platforms. I mean, a strategy that we use with stay-at-home moms and nannies, people who are hired nannies, is man, stay-at-home moms know the privilege and honor that they have to shape and mold the minds of their children. Nannies have the same opportunity because they're functioning as a mother figure to these kids. With a nail tech, you're sitting there for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, spending a lot of money, but you can have a 40-minute conversation with this person, and they're not going anywhere. And so that's kind of the socioeconomics behind it is, okay, Philippines is developing country. People are going out and sending money back home, and they're taking jobs that put them in the communities with Muslims. How do we take the most of those water cooler-based conversations, and how do we make the most of their everyday relationships for the gospel? Um, that's all the time I have because it's 7 uh, o'clock sharp. Um, I'll be up here if you want to talk. If you're interested in partnership, um, you can scan the QR code and learn a little bit more about that. Um, I am so grateful that you would give me an opportunity to share with you all this morning. Thank you.